Guys, I've been telling you for weeks now, it's cold out. I mean, it's not even winter. We're still days away from December 21st, and it's been freezing for weeks. That's why I'm pleased to tell you again that this episode of Movie Night is brought to you by realtor Tommy Holmes of Palm Beach. Folks, escape these nasty northeast winters and go south with the geese. Tommy Holmes at Illustrated Properties will help you find that dream home in South Florida. Call Tommy Holmes today at 203-570-0026 or email him at tholmes, that's H-O-L-M-E-S, at ipre.com. And now, it's movie night. Life's riddles are answered in the movies. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. This isn't a movie. This is reality. There's a difference. Here's one thing I've learned from the movies. Welcome to Movie Nights. This is a Rye Record podcast, and I am Noah Gattel, film critic for the Rye Record. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about The Mule, Clint Eastwood's 37th film as a director. Wow. And we'll be doing a draft in the second half of the show of the best performances by an actor over 80 years old. And here to discuss that with me is my co-host, Will Yovanovich. Hello, Will. Hello, Noah. How you doing? Doing pretty well today. I think it's going to be a good show. And before we get into it, I want to make a couple corrections from last week's show. You and I, Will, discussed Vox Lux last week, and we referred to its director as Brady Corbett. Now, from what I have subsequently heard, his name is pronounced Brady Corbet. And I don't know if that's correct or not, but I think we should at least include it as a possibility that it is correct because we said it so many times last week. The other correction I'd like to make is that we were talking about Moonlight last week, a film that you did not like, Will, and a film that I did. And in my defense of the movie, I said, you will not convince me that there was a better movie in 2016 than Moonlight. Well, I went back and looked at my top 10 list that I made in December of 2016, and Moonlight was number two on my list. I had Arrival as my number one film of the year. So I convinced myself, apparently, that it was not the best film of 2016, and I thought I should clarify that. I don't know if it really makes you win that particular argument. But for full disclosure, I thought I should be clear about that. So this being our fourth podcast, that now makes two of those episodes that we have begun with your making some type of apology to the listeners. At, at the current trend, this is basically half the time we're going to start off by apologizing for something that we've done. Um, I, in Major I, League I, Baseball, I think that's a good record. I'm not really sure about podcasting, how that represents as well. I think it's a great thing, actually, because it shows that we're being forthright and honest with our listeners. And in fact, I might even say if we have nothing to apologize for. We did something wrong the previous week. Well, especially on that Brady Corbet business. I mean, uh, you know, OK, well, he's made a movie and I hadn't. If uh, he wants to pronounce it like Sorbet, uh, good on him, I suppose. I feel like he's going for a Colbert kind of thing. Actually. Uh, uh, it was a born Corbett, but celebrated as Corbett. <laughs> I would love to ask him, but I don't think he's ever going to come on the show after what I said about his film last week. Granted. So now it's time for the segment, What Did You See This Week? 
Will, uh, what did you see this week? Anything you want to recommend or not recommend? Um, I think one would be a recommend, the other a hard no. I finally got into that list of movies you sent me for pictures that came out in 2018. And I saw two movies which couldn't be more different in terms of subject matter or direction, um, yet produced the same eerie feeling within me. One of those was Eighth Grade, which uh, details the last week of eighth grade for a 14-year-old girl. It's actually very interesting. I think it's won a few awards. There's some buzz behind it. And then I saw uh, the Joaquin Phoenix film, You Were Never Really Here, which tells the story of a uh, psychologically disturbed combat veteran who freelances back in the States as a rescuer of abducted preteen girls. Uh, it's a very violent and disturbing film. They've got to say going back to eighth grade, which is an enjoyable movie. My wife and I, we, we laughed, we cried. Um, that movie actually scared me more as a father of a girl than the very graphic and brutal You Are Never Really Here. Because what, and I think there's a fairly accurate telling of what uh, girls go through in middle school and then high school or what any kid goes through these days with the availability of the internet, uh, lewd and lascivious behavior that can be broadcast everywhere, all sorts of social pressures, body image pressures, um, miserable but abundant fare of entertainment and information that's available to them. Um, after this, I have determined that uh, my daughter will get her first smartphone when she's 30. Good luck with that, first of all. But I, I agree with your overall take. I, I like both of those movies, but I like eighth grade, eighth grade a lot more. And I think the reason it's scarier is because the girl in You Were Never Really Here is very abstract. Like, she exists in the film. We see her. But she doesn't really have any personality at all. You, you could, I mean, you could probably make an argument that she doesn't exist and she's just a figment of this lead character's psychosis. That's how little her actual, uh, how little she actually matters in the movie. Uh, whereas eighth grade, she is a fully realized person, really a, a rich, rich portrayal of, of what it's like to be a teenager in America right now. And they're both pretty scary movies, though, right? Like eighth grade, the music almost reminded me of a horror movie at times. And I, I didn't laugh quite as much as it sounds like you did. I found it like cringe comedy without the comedy. I found it very, very painful. There are a lot of cringeworthy moments. So I saw two movies last night. Well, one and a half. Uh, my wife was out of town, and I decided to catch up on some stuff I had, had missed. I've always been meaning to get around to. And I watched Clute for the first time with uh, Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda. And I can't believe I'd never seen it before, because it's one of those movies you hear a lot about growing up. And uh, I thought it was great. Uh, it, it would not play well if it came out today. There's some uh, problematic stuff in it. Uh, but I thought Jane Fonda really gives an electric performance. I'm not surprised at all she won the Oscar. And she plays a, a prostitute who is kind of trying to get out of the life. And Donald Sutherland is a private investigator who is uh, looking into the disappearance of a friend of his who had some sort of ambiguous relationship with her. And it's sort of got some noir elements, uh, but her performance is really what makes the whole thing work as far as I'm concerned. And Roy Scheider as a junkie pimp, which I am, I'm always here for. I don't know if there's any other movies in which he played a junkie pimp, but he could have made a whole career out of it as far as I'm concerned. Roy Scheider owned the 70s. 
if the 70s belonged to one man, it was Roy Scheider. He was perfect for that time. And he's so different in everything he did in the 70s, too. I mean, if you compare his performance in all that jazz or Clute to Jaws, I mean, you're looking at totally, totally different actors. So after uh, after Clute, I was looking at Alan J. Pakula's uh, filmography, and I realized I had never seen Sophie's Choice. So I threw that on, and I got to tell you, I couldn't get through it. Like, knowing what's coming at the end of the movie, I could not tolerate all the prancing around by Kevin Klein in the first half of that movie. And I, I'm sure it's very good, although... You know, notably, it was not nominated for Best Picture, although for a bunch of other stuff, and Streep did win the Oscar for her performance. Uh, I think it's not a great movie, and other people may disagree. Maybe I should give it another chance at some point, but I just couldn't get through it myself. Have you ever seen it? I have seen it, and I've watched it through the end, and Kevin Klein is a big irritant in the movie, but it is a very difficult movie to watch. And also, my my plea to America is this. Let us retire the phrase and usage of Sophie's choice. That's not a good metaphor to use whenever an individual is conflicted about choosing one thing or another. For most people who haven't seen Sophie's choice, Sophie does indeed make a choice. It is an impossible, difficult, and heartrending choice. And yet the phrase, it was a real Sophie's choice, is used quite casually hopefully as a result of ignorance. I hope people aren't after seeing Sophie's choice then at the next, you know, day at uh, the Whole Foods saying, it, you know, it was a real Sophie's choice to pick these types of organic almonds versus the other. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm striking it from my lexicon. It's there out. You go. Family's the most important thing. Don't do what I did. I put work in front of family. I thought it was more important to be somebody out there than the damn failure I was in my own home. So let's talk about The Mule now. And before we do that, I think it might be useful just to talk about Clint Eastwood more broadly and kind of where he stands in his career. Uh, this is how I think about Clint Eastwood. And tell me how you feel. I look at Clint Eastwood these days, kind of the way I looked at Woody Allen until recently, which is that these are both guys who have made some incredible movies. And at this point, they're both sort of just going through the motions. Not to say that they can't make a good film still and that they're not putting something of themselves into their movies, but they seem so committed to just churning them out, making a movie every year if they can. And Woody Allen is not going anymore. His career is over for a whole host of other reasons. But Eastwood is still going. And when a new movie comes out of his, I'm kind of feeling like, is this going to be one of the good ones? Or is this going to be the one of the ones that seems like just filler? So Eastwood has something to do. Yes, I've been a big Eastwood fan, both for his acting performances and his directing ever since Play Misty for me, which he made. That was a directorial debut in 1971. And you're right. He's made, I believe, 41 movies since 1971. So he's almost at one movie per year. Some of them have been terrific. I love The Outlaw Josie Wales, Mystic River, Unforgiven, which I believe he won an Oscar for. Mm -hmm. But there's also a whole host of really cruddy, forgettable films like The Rookie or Space Cowboys, Bronco Billy. He's, he's had a, a big career and a big opportunity to make a lot of things. Obviously, you know, I, I think Woody Allen is a very good comparison, which is that there are incredibly memorable films 
and there are ones which, you know, hopefully over time, the internet will uh, prevent us from remembering. So given that, tell me what you thought of the mule. So going into it, my biggest concern about the mule, and some of it has to do with how the, the preview or trailer for the movie comes across, was that this would be another iteration, probably a weaker, more strained iteration of, say, Grand Torino or Million Dollar Baby, where there's an old grizzled guy estranged from his family who is holding on to traditional or obsolete values but is needed to do one final thing to serve those he cares about or those he's recently come to know because the people who he once loved no longer love him. I was afraid that that was, this movie would just be another version of that. And I was actually somewhat surprised that it wasn't. It's not a very well executed film. The script has some major problems, much like its main character, Earl Stone, who meanders across the country in his pickup truck, offloading shipments of cocaine on behalf of a drug cartel. The film kind of travels all over the place and doesn't stop too long. But I liked it for one big reason, which is he plays a character that I don't believe he's ever played before, which is a fool and a loser who, unlike films like Gran Torino or really probably every movie he's made and has starred in since the early 90s, beginning with Unforgiven, playing a character who's seeking some form of imperfect redemption. The movie doesn't really try for that. It's more the story of a fool who gets a little bit wiser, uh, a man who has burned every possible bridge and makes some small inroads, but doesn't have an unrealistic character change. And the biggest impact on his life unlike in prior films, isn't, doesn't come as a result of bold and courageous things that he has done, but rather it's the story of a family welcoming him home. And I found because the movie was not quite what I expected, it added a couple points to it for me. That's interesting. You know, it takes a while to get to that part of the movie where the family welcomes him home. And when it does happen in the third act, it, it, was, it was very powerful. But I think I actually liked the other parts of it better. Uh, th there's this kind of ambling sense that the movie has. This movie is very relaxed at times. It's funny at times. Some of my favorite parts of the movie when you, is when you're just with Clint Eastwood in the car while he's driving across America and singing along to country songs on the radio. And the movie has a lot of fun with that. And a lot of that was very unexpected. The, the trailer made it seem like this was going to be, as you said, a very serious Kind of violent redemption story and it does have some elements of that but just when you think it's gonna zig it sort of zags into a different area and i really have to say i i enjoyed it a lot i wasn't expecting to enjoy it so much it looked like it was a bit of a tough sit from all the marketing materials that i had seen but i really just enjoyed being with clint eastwood in this movie and he has a lot of charisma still at 87 years old i think it is and this movie kind of counted on that and luxuriated in that and I had a good time but I will say there's some weird stuff in this movie and I don't I don't really even know how to talk about it but I think that we should and one of the strange things in this movie is that Clint Eastwood has not one but two threesomes in this film and they are both with a pair of younger attractive women 
And there's another scene when he's at a wedding in this movie where these young, attractive women seem to want to be dancing with him the whole time. And I can't help but feel that this movie in some way is a bit of a self, it's a bit self-aggrandizing or even self-mythologizing that he is in some way trying to create a picture of Clint Eastwood to leave us with something that sums up who he thinks he was in his life. And his, uh, the way women are attracted to him is certainly part of that. But there's also a lot of kind of racial stuff in this movie that I found pretty interesting, given how racial politics have always been intertwined with the films that he has made. Did you pick up on any of that stuff, Will? Yeah. So, I mean, just on the, the issue of his success with the ladies, to be fair to Clint, he has fathered eight children with six <laughs> different women, reportedly, some of which uh, he seems to have done in his 50s or even possibly his 60s. So he does deserve a little bit of credit on that front. But I no, I do think that there's an element of this may be my last movie. I'm both directing and or starring in. If there's going to be an opportunity for me to have a couple of threesomes with some <laughs> ladies who are 50 to 60 years younger than I am, it might as well be in a movie about drug running. I mean, it's not realistic at all, right? I mean, I know there's this background to his character that he's always hanging out at the bar when he should be with his family. So presumably he, he likes the ladies. But I don't think it's believable that he would meet two young, attractive women at like a highway motel and talk them into a menage a trois at 87 years old. There was the implication, I think, that some money might have changed hands in order to pull that off. Well, that does change things. I didn't, I didn't notice that. But certainly the other menage a trois, it's not something that he exactly uh, earned on the merits. I thought that in that scene where he's invited down to the Colombian drug lords uh, or Mexican drug lords mansion in Sinaloa, where he's sort of the life of the party. He's women are spending time with him. He's got a kind of easy, relaxed charm where he's not worried for a second about any of the violence that could be visited on him in a moment as comes with that territory. And I think that scene kind of demonstrates your point, which is it's a fantastic movie though, even though it is based on a true story, the way that his character acts uh, in front of violence and drugs and money, he acts like a man who will never have any consequences visited upon him. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it's really strange because I almost feel like Eastwood, the director, and Eastwood, the actor, are both the same person in this movie, in a way. Like, he's... He's acting in both roles to kind of uh, build up this myth of who Clint Eastwood is. And I think you see that a little bit in, in some of the strange racial things going on in this movie. There's a scene where he, he uh, pulls over the side of the road to help a black family change a tire. And there's this weird moment where he says to the, to the father, didn't your father ever teach you to change a tire? He calls them Negroes, actually, at one point, and they have to correct him. And... Yeah, I don't know what, what the purpose of these scenes are, except I guess we're supposed to feel that he is, uh, you know, an old kind of regressive guy who's vaguely learning something along the way. But then there's the scene that comes out of nowhere towards the end of the movie when the FBI agents pull over a truck that they think is his 
and there's a man, a, a Latino man in the car who's very scared and very nervous. He gets out of the car and he's telling them, I don't have a weapon on me. The statistics show that this is the situation in my life in which I am most likely to die. He says this twice. And I don't know what a purpose this scene had in, in, for the story. And Clint Eastwood's character is not in the scene, but I can't help but feel like Clint Eastwood as a director is trying to atone for some past uh, racial sins or, or something that he has done in the past in his previous films that doesn't play well today. And there's this weird dynamic going on where the director and the actor who are the same person are kind of both addressing this problem from different angles. Does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense, particularly because a decade earlier, he directs and stars in Gran Torino, a film whose screenplay is also written by the writer of this screenplay, The Mules, Nick mm. Schenck. And I think it represents from Gran Torino to The Mule, a kind of evolution where that character was in Gran Torino, kind of an unabashed racist. And he's still portrayed as a hero. Perhaps he's a little rough around the edges, but I think the movie makes the argument that there's some justification for his racial animus. He's the last white man living in a community that has been profoundly changed by immigration and changing racial demographics. It is critical of other cultures. It's critical of black culture. It's critical of Asian culture. This movie, The Mule, I think shows some type of late in life, very late in life, because the guy is almost 80 in Gran Torino directing it. This shows a maturation on his part where his racism and racism in general is seen as a kind of ignorance. And it's actually, he credits the African-American family who he helps with an understanding and forgiveness of his ignorance. You have a similar scene where he mistakes a female lesbian biker for a man. Mm -hmm. And he actually gets along with this group of women who you think there's a moment where they're going to confront him because of his ignorance and bigotry, but they're forgiving of him. I think in a way he's asking for forgiveness for some of the uh, racial animus that he may have demonstrated in prior. Movies. I think that's true. It might be a little generous. I mean, maybe he is assigning himself forgiveness, uh, you know, on his own terms, as opposed to actually asking for it from the real life community. He's giving himself forgiveness in the movie. But I think that's still progress compared to where he stood uh, before. For what it's worth, I'm sorry for everything. In Gran Torino was celebrated by some moviegoers when the movie came out. And there was a big divide in the country where you know he received no Oscar nomination. I think besides, uh, I think there might have been a musical nomination given out by a, a lesser award ceremony than the Academy Awards for Gran Torino. But Gran Torino had a wide public approval, at least from some quarters of America when it came out. The racism and ignorance of his character in The Mule, it's not celebrated. He's not seen as any kind of hero for having outdated notions about people. No, in fact, the only outdated notion he has about anything is is towards the Internet. He has uh, He is saving his outrage for Internet culture. And his character, who is a horticulturist who sells flowers in the beginning, he gets put out of business by Internet flower delivery services. And it reminds me a little bit of Sully, who... 
the film that really, as it concluded, was outraged about data analysis and the way that we are losing our humanity as we give all of our judgment over to computers, essentially. So I find it interesting that he has sort of, at this point of his career, shifted his outrage uh, away from, from anything more controversial and sticking it to uh, the internet, which is something you know people of his age have a lot of problems with. So it sounds like we both liked this movie with some reservations. Who would you take to it? I would take any fan of Clint Eastwood to see this movie because I believe, and he has communicated that this, he's stepping away from movies. So it probably is a, it's worthwhile. It's an enjoyable movie on its own, even if you aren't a fan of Clint, but it's a, it's not a bad movie for him to go out on. I, and anybody who has remembered Clint from the Westerns or the Dirty Harry movies, it's an interesting and odd that he's 88 or 89 while he's making this to, to show a new side of him to an extent. But I think it would be rewarding for anybody who's followed his career. I have to agree. And I, I think I, I would take just about anybody to this movie. I will say I've noticed that this movie is liked more by white men and that people of color and women seem to have a big problem with Clint Eastwood at this point. So I'd probably take somebody a lot like myself, somebody who likes Clint Eastwood, somebody who likes great acting. I mean, there are a lot of great supporting roles in this movie from people like Bradley Cooper, who you know. If anybody was listening to episode two, I'm not a fan of, but he's good in this movie. Michael Pena is terrific in this movie. Andy Garcia has a really great role as the uh, cartel leader. So it's kind of a throwback movie in a lot of ways. It's a lean, simple story with great acting. And uh, I'd recommend it to just about everybody. Well, the, the ideal person that you describe that you would take to this movie, someone who's a fan of Clint, somebody who's like you, also a white man, mm. It sounds like me. I mean, you saw the movie yesterday at 4.45 in the p.m. I saw it at 4.45 in the p.m. I looked over. Nonetheless, you weren't no, there. No, you weren't there either. Would it hurt you to just say in a less long-winded manner, I would have taken you? We, we made a deal that we were not going to see the movies that we're going to talk about on the podcast together. Maybe that was a mistake. It's perverting our I mean, friendship. Your feelings are clearly hurt, so I think it was. and I had come up with a draft this week. This is going to be a draft of performances by actors age 80 or older. Now, of course, you never know exactly when the movie was made and how old the actor was when they were doing the performance. So we're going to go by the year the movie came out. And I am excited about this draft. Before we begin, I want to say, just for the listeners out there, to be clear, you and I do not coordinate this at all. I don't know who's on your draft board. You don't know who's mine. I feel like in, in the drafts that we've done so far, we haven't had a, a lot of overlap and we haven't had to shuffle things around at the last minute because you took something that was on my board or I took something that was on your board. I have a feeling that might change this week because in this draft of acting performances by people over 80, there are not that many to choose from as I expected there would be. I feel that a lot of the performances by people who I thought were over 80, they were under 80, they were in their 70s or even 60s, and that it is only fairly recently that actors have been still working well into their 80s in significant roles. So I think there's the pool is a lot smaller in this particular draft, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. 
All right. Do you want to start? No, I want you to have the first pick. I had the first pick last week, so this one's all yours. All right. Well, I'm going to go for my number one draft pick. Ralph Bellamy as Randolph Duke in 1983's Trading Places. We are commodities brokers, William. Now, what are commodities? Commodities are agricultural products, like coffee that you had for breakfast, wheat, which is used to make bread, pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich. So Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, Don Amici's too young to be in this category by at least a decade, so he didn't make the cut. Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy play Randolph and Mortimer Duke, who are the villains of 1983's Trading Places, a movie starring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. And they play these villainous brothers who decide to play a terrible social experiment on Dan Aykroyd by stripping him of his wealth, his connections, his privilege, and basically giving his life to a street con artist played by Eddie Murphy to see if they can produce the same successful outcomes, a kind of nature versus nurture debate. Hey, bro, I got to interrupt you. Ralph Bellamy was 79 when Trading Places came out. He's allowed. We had this discussion. (laughs) No, we said if if the movie came out. If they're 79, we're allowing this. That is not what we said. I misinterpreted, or rather I interpreted it my way, and thus I must move forward. Okay. I mean, I'm going to call the commissioner's office and launch an official protest, but you you go ahead for now. (laughs) I I shall proceed. (laughs) So Don Amici's character gets a lot of the best one-liners of the two brothers, but Ralph Bellamy has the more interesting role because he is initially uh, presented to the audience as the more progressive, enlightened of the two brothers who cares about society and has thought ways of thought about ways of helping man and improving their world but every time his high-minded principles come in contact with an actual person they tend to fall apart that's a fine pick and i haven't seen that movie in a long time i was never the biggest fan of it it's in that period that i think happens for a lot of people it came out less than five years after i was born and that's always been a bit of a blind spot for me in a pop culture sense and actually, Sophie's Choice falls into that category as well. You know, I just haven't seen a lot of those movies because I was, you know, too young to be conscious of them. Uh, but I do remember his performance in that. I remember the the difference between his character and Don Amici's character. And I think, I think you make some great points. Unfortunately, it is not eligible and you will be sacrificing the pick. We'll have to appeal to the podcast commissioner on this one. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to hear my first pick? I think you're going to be interested in this one. I'd, uh, I'd love it. Though I'll be Google fact-checking the age and demanding the original long-form birth certificate of whoever you're putting up. <laughs> well, my first pick is Mr. Don Amici, but not in Trading Places. It's in Things Change. Just to show shoes. Columbia Pictures presents the story of two unlikely friends. You the boss. I am the boss. And one unforgettable weekend. How big is your guy? This is the guy behind the guy behind the guy. At the mob's expense. Here we go. You and I talked about Things Change a couple weeks ago off the air when magician slash actor Ricky Jay passed away because he had a role in this film. 
It's David Mamet's second movie, I believe, and it's really a beautiful film. It's a comedy about an elderly Italian shoeshiner who makes a deal with the mafia to confess to a crime he didn't commit. He'll go to jail for a few year, years and they'll give him some money when he gets out. And the weekend before he's supposed to make his confession, he is supposed to stay in his hotel room and they assign a low level mobster to watch him. And this guy's played by Joe Mantegna. And he takes Don Amici's character to Lake Tahoe for the weekend to show him a good time. And it might sound a little trite the way I describe it, but the dialogue is fantastic, of course, written by David Mamet. And it has this very wistful quality to it, as opposed to a goofy comedic take, which, which a lot of other directors would, would probably opt for with a story like this. And Don Amici gives a really amazing performance. He doesn't say that much in the movie. And he uses this kind of broad, almost cartoonish Italian accent. But he imbues the character with so much soul. And the dialogue that he does say, you know, most actors, when they, they use Mamet's dialogue, they read it almost in a deadpan way. You know, Mamet famously wants his actors not to interpret the dialogue too much. He wants them to just say it. He believes that the truth is in the rhythm of the dialogue. But Amici does something different here. He goes very big and very broad. And I think it really works. It really stands out and it imbues the whole film with a, a soulfulness that I think is missing from some of Mamet's other work. So that's my number one pick. It was that's a that's a terrific pick. That's a terrific pick. Thank you. Uh, had we had a longer list, you might have thrown in his performance in Oscar, starring Sylvester Stallone. But uh, I would not have. <laughs> my number two pick comes from one of my favorite movies, Jessica Tandy as Burl Peoples in Nobody's Fool, 1994. This is her last acting performance, and I believe she died just before the movie came out. Mm. So Jessica Tandy is an interesting actress. She was the original stage performance of Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire. The movie version, of course, had Vivian Lee in it. Jessica Tandy never really got a lot of recognition for the acting talent that she was until really sort of later in life, the 80s and the 90s. She's in Fried Green Tomatoes, obviously Driving Miss Daisy. For of course, granted. Uh, <laughs> well, we can't talk. We can't have a podcast about performances by the elderly and not mention Cocoon somewhere. Yeah, I, it's just it's a pretty dated movie that's not very good. Also, Wilford Brimley in that movie playing an old man is about thirteen years older than than you and I actually are. So that movie just makes me uncomfortable. In thirteen years. I could look like Wilford Brimley in that movie. It could happen. So what was he, like 30 when he made The Natural? How old was he? He has been playing an old man for a very, very long time. <laughs> like, you understand, Tom Cruise is now seven years older than Wilford Brimley was in Cocoon. Well, there's this whole phenomenon of, like, actors who are older when you're a kid and you think they're, like, 80, but they're actually in their 50s. Maggie Smith is only 85 or something, and I thought she was 80 when I was five years old. And it's a very strange phenomenon to kind of watch these people not age as we turn from children into middle-aged men. Max von Sydow has been playing an old man since the three days of the Condor, which I believe came out in 1977. It was 40 years ago. Yes. <laughs> All right, that was a digression. Go ahead. So I picked her in Nobody's Fool as opposed to Driving Miss Daisy because I think 
it's an interesting and tougher role for her actually in Nobody's Fool. She plays Paul Newman, who's the star of the movie's landlord, who was once his high school teachers. They play people who have had something like a 50-year-long relationship. And what's revealed throughout the movie is as much as she chides Paul Newman and corrects him and constantly points out his flaws, that she actually loves him more than her own son, who's Newman's contemporary and is a much more at least outwardly successful and more prominent person living in the small town. And the movie reaches an end where she has sort of a reckoning with that. She's presented throughout the film as a, a model person, as a correct person, as someone that Newman should be listening to and aspiring to. But in a last moment of the film where she truly admits her flaws, the two of them, Newman and her, come to this terrific, loving understanding. And it's, uh, she was not nominated for this role, maybe because they felt, well, she already won for Driving Miss Daisy. And I think the Oscars devoted uh, some type of honorarium for her during that performance but i i feel that it was actually a much more oscar worthy performance than driving miss daisy i haven't seen nobody's fool and i obviously need to correct that i did have driving miss daisy on my list although it was not near the top of my list for the reasons that you mentioned it's not really that complex of a performance by her and the movie also hasn't aged particularly well in some regards so i will have to check out nobody's fool if i want to get the full jessica tandy experience all right, let's hear your second draft pick. Number two is Emmanuel Riva in Amor. Now, this movie, this performance is very important to me because I don't usually get wound up about the Oscars, but when the Academy gave the Best Actress Oscar to Jennifer Lawrence in Silver Linings Playbook over Emmanuel Riva in Amor, I got angry. Emmanuel Riva was 84 years old. It was actually her 84th birthday, the day of the Oscars. She flew all the way to L.A. from France to attend the ceremony and lose to Jennifer Lawrence's Silver Linings Playbook. I'm not a big Jennifer Lawrence fan, and you know how I feel about Bradley Cooper, so you can imagine my take on Silver Linings Playbook. But by any metric, her performance in Amour was the best of the year. She is a, an old woman who, in the film, basically is dying. The film watches her as she has her first episode all the way until her death at the end of the movie. It's a film about the indignities of that process and what she puts herself through and what she shows us is something that not just movies have never shown before, but our entire society is in some ways constructed to hide from us, which is what happens when you are dying. And it's an incredibly brave performance for an actor to uh, undergo such uh, indignities uh, as they are you know, close to death themselves. She died a year later. And I think it, she should get credit for that performance, not just uh, from the Oscars, but I think it's a movie that everybody should see. And truth be told, it would have been my number one pick, but I was afraid you were gonna take Don Amici because we had just talked about that movie recently. So I employed a little gamesmanship there, but I actually think this is the best performance by an actor over 80 of all time. So I think you make good points, and I can understand why you feel she was robbed at the Oscars. However, my question is, did Emmanuel Riva learn how to do some crazy things with Bradley Cooper? Because if she didn't, I, don't know how, I can understand why Jenny Lawrence gets the Oscar. 
you know, I don't know how she prepared for the role, Will. It's very possible that she did do some dancing with Bradley Cooper. Uh, but we didn't see it on screen. Maybe in the deleted scenes. I don't know. The director's cut out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, the director's cut of Amour. Uh, what's your number three pick, Will? My number three draft pick is Ellen Burstyn playing Murphy Cooper as an old woman in 2014's Interstellar. It's a character that's portrayed by Mackenzie Foy, Jessica Chastain, and then finally Ellen Burstyn in what appears to be the final stages of her life. It's a very, very short performance. I think that Burstyn has, between voiceover and being on screen, probably not more than about seven minutes in the entire movie. And the movie's almost three hours long. But it's a very meaningful performance because at the end of the movie, she is reunited with Matthew McConaughey, who she last saw when he was 30 years older than her. And now they're reuniting. And because of the physics of space travel, she's something like 70 years older than he is. They have to make up for a lot of lost time. In this very short moment, they have to say hello. They have to say goodbye. She has to let him know that she forgives him. And a big Ellen Burstyn fan ever since The King of Marvin Gardens, which was made probably 40-something years ago. It's a very, very touching scene because she's so oftentimes kind of dolled up and presented in a somewhat glamorous way. And in this, there's just a raw, frail woman who has portraying somebody who is basically held on to life in the hopes that she would be reconnected with her father for which there would be very little reason that that would ever happen and when it does happen it's kind of an overwhelming and touching scene i'm okay with that pick i actually don't remember her performance that well and i've seen the movie a couple of times but i'm okay with it because i like mentioning ellen burstyn when i first started researching this uh, for this draft I immediately thought of Requiem for a Dream. Now, of course, she was not anywhere near 80 when she made that movie, but her character is so frail that I kind of thought, well, maybe she was. So any any ancillary reference to Requiem for a Dream, uh, I'm okay with. So I support your Ellen Burstyn pick for this other movie. Interesting thing about her is in this decade, she's actually played this exact same role twice as a child of someone who, because of some weird science fiction reason, is considerably older than her parents. She does the same thing in The Age of Adeline, though it's not a performance or a movie that I would recommend. But it is interesting that she, some, for some reason, picked to play the same person where her mom or dad is years younger than her, and she has to play the dual role of parent and child to them. It's interesting. She must have some sort of youthful sensibility somewhere inside of her, despite her advanced age. I think she does. So for my last pick, I really would like to pick Voivish Finkel from A Serious Man. He plays the Dybbuk in the first scene uh, of the Coen Brothers film. I for, think he's for a non-Yiddish speaking audience, would you like to explain what a Dybbuk is? A Dybbuk is in, I guess, was it in Jewish folklore? It's a, a demon that has inhabited the body of a dead person. Uh, and in the first scene of this movie, there's a quest, there's a scene that takes place in the old country, and there's a question as to whether this person is a Dybbuk or not. And it's, it's the closest the Coen brothers have ever come to making a horror movie. And it's largely due to Finkel's performance. He is really incredible. And he has this creepy kind of uh, sensibility to him. 
he was a vaudeville performer. He's been around forever. Obviously, he was 87 when he made the movie. And he's only in this one scene, but it's an incredible scene. You can look it up on YouTube, and I think it totally works as a standalone scene if you haven't seen the movie. But I have to pick a Christopher Plummer performance because he has given three great performances in his 80s. And he won for uh, Beginners. He won the Oscar at 82 years old uh, as, a, as an old man uh, coming out of the closet as a gay person. He was terrific in All the Money in the World, this movie that he had to replace Kevin Spacey in after the movie was shot and the revelations about Kevin Spacey came out, his sexual assault allegations. And he had to reshoot all these scenes uh, in nine days. But I'm gonna take his performance in this movie called Remember. We are the last living survivors. Stand by the window. Who are you? Please, don't yell. This is Nazi. Nazi. Bad This is a film directed by Canadian director Adam Egoyan. And I don't think a lot of people saw it, but they should. He plays uh, an old man, obviously, in a, uh, a senior home. He is the a survivor of the Holocaust. And he and one of his friends, who is also a survivor, have come up with this plan for him to track down uh, the guard at their camp and to kill him. And he has to sneak out of his home. He has to go across the country and, and check in on, on all of these people who have the same name as the guard, determine if they are that person, and then kill them. What I really like about Plummer's performance and what makes it stand out from all of these others is that it's a very physical performance. There are times when Remember is almost an action movie. There are fight scenes in it. Uh, he gets into a gunfight with Dean Norris, uh, famously from, from Breaking Bad, uh, in, in one scene in the movie. And the movie really reckons with what it is like for a person in their 80s to have to do something physical when their survival is at stake. And the movie also broadly kind of uh, touches on what it means to uh, be one of the last people who remembers the Holocaust uh, from firsthand experience. And that's something I don't think a lot of movies have really touched on, but they will as, as time goes on. So I recommend the movie and I deeply admire the performance. I'm a huge Christopher Plummer fan. I have seen All the Money in the World and Beginners. I have not seen Remember, but you've inspired me. I'm going to watch that tonight. I, Any others you want to mention that, that didn't make your list? Yeah, uh, it, some of it had to do with they were close to 80, but not quite. So, Like Ralph Bellamy? <laughs> you know, by the way, I'm going to fact check you on Don Amici. I don't believe he was born in 1908. I believe you're wrong. Uh, he plays Mortimer Duke, who's the younger brother than Ralph Bellamy, though Don Amici clearly had a little bit more youth and vitality than, uh, than Ralph Bellamy did. Well, guess what? Next week, apologies. That section is, is waiting for you it's to correct. blocked out for you, Mr. Gattel. <laughs> you know, uh, you'll be singing I'm Sorry to our, uh, our ever-expanding audience. So the two roles that I wanted to mention, these guys missed the cutoff. One is Michael Caine in The Dark Knight. He is, he's over the age of 80 in The Dark Knight Rises, but I actually found his performance in that a little bit uh, melodramatic and hammy. But I absolutely love him in The Dark Knight. And the other pick that I had, in fact, this was going to be my number one pick until I age-checked him, was Richard Harris as Professor Albus Dumbledore in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I, you know, people 
has differing views about the Christopher Columbus directed Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, but Richard Harris is absolutely fantastic in it. He was born to play that role, and sadly he died after uh, the second movie that he made, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. His character was replaced somewhat ably by Michael Gambon for another four films. But um, Richard Harris, he's absolutely terrific. He occupies the role perfectly. The only problem is this. He was 70 years old when he shot this. He looks like he's 90, and it's not as a result of makeup, but rather the result of Richard Harris living a hard-drinking, hard-living life. I mean, for context, my dad's about to turn 70. He looks great. He would not confuse anybody for Professor Albus Dumbledore with a long white uh, beard and wrinkles all over his face. So a, a message to the fellows out there, if you, you keep it clean, you too can experience longevity. Well, I think when we talk about people like Wilford Brimley uh, and other people who appeared to be much older when they were younger, part of it is our perception that we were kids then and anybody over the age of 30 looked old. But I do think people are taking better care of themselves now than they used to. Hollywood and, and the plastic surgery division out there has, has come up with many advances to make people look younger as they get older. So I think that has something to do with it too. If I had to pick somebody who did not make my list due to age, I would say Jason Robards and Magnolia would be my top pick. He again passed away right after he made the movie. He plays a character who's dying of cancer in the film and he does not look well. He certainly looks uh, over 80. And it's an incredible performance. It reminds me of Amore a little bit. It's a character who is dying over the course of the film. He does the whole film from a bed uh, in his home. And he has this just incredible monologue talking about his regrets in life towards the end of the movie that is really an, an all-timer. So I recommend it to everyone. I believe the phrase he utters at one point is, the goddamn regret. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, bar it's buried deep into my soul after hearing him say that. It's just incredible. That's a perfect pick, by the way. It pains me to admit it, but that is, uh, that is a dynamite pick. Well, thank you. I think we both had a great drafts, and you know, unfortunately, you did disqualify yourself. But if it weren't for that, I think we'd be pretty even here. Pending, I, pending an investigation. Let's just let's, let's 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 asterisk this right now. <laughs> this is like a football game or a baseball game when the winning run or the winning touchdown has just happened, but you got to wait for the referee to check it because it was so close. Well, we will cover that in next week's episode, in which we will cover what else, Noah. I think next week we're going to be doing a holiday movie-themed episode. I don't think we've worked out all the details. There aren't any new movies to cover, so we're probably just going to do a draft or something like it. But bone up on your holiday-themed movies because we're going to be digging in next week. I'm going to watch Silent Night, Deadly Night, and then Jack Frost. Or is that hey. not kind of what you meant? Well, if we do worst holiday movies, you'll be prepared for that. <laughs> Jack Frost, starring Michael Keaton, is actually worse then Silent Night, Deadly Night, which of course includes an axe-wielding murderous Santa Claus. I'm going to take your word for that. Thank you for the information. And until next time, we'll see you at the movies. That was a bit much. <laughs> You'll edit it in post. <laughs> well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock I know where I'm gonna go I'm gonna pick my baby up and take her to the picture show. <laughs>